Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 11. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 11. Some very solemn words given by the Holy Spirit for the church today. As I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. As I swore in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. I want to thank you and your pastor in particular, whom it is a joy to meet again. I want to thank you for your very generous welcome and a very pleasant invitation while I'm in the United States. I think I ought to say straight away that no bishop can be blamed for the position I occupy in the city of London. I also ought to say that if you're coming that way, we shall be delighted to see you, either on a Sunday or on a Tuesday in the lunch hour, as we call it, the noon hour, as you call it. Whatever you call it, it's at five past one on a Tuesday. I want to thank you then for your tremendous generosity and welcome in asking me here tonight, even if you have set me a tremendous, even an awesome task in taking such a solemn theme that might well make us tremble. I have just come from a preaching conference, that is a conference for training young ministers in the ministry of the word, and an incident that took place there will show you why I'm glad to be at this particular reformed conference. I happen to mention casually in the course of one of the workshops that in my own life some years ago I went through a Copernican revolution as I called it, in my own teaching ministry. It was a gradual revolution. I discovered that I had been preaching man, and I very much wanted to preach God. And it was clear in the workshop that though this was a remark that was just said uh, en route, really, en passant, I hadn't specially meant to make anything of it, it was immediately taken up with great interest. What did I mean by that? There was no time for an elaborate explanation, of course, in the middle of the workshop. So I gave what one can only give at a time like that, some very simple illustrations. I said that when I was a very young man, when I first heard the gospel, I had been helped very much by teaching that focused on receiving Christ, on accepting Christ as one's personal saviour. And I thank God for those who led me to Christ all those years ago. But I said that as life had gone on, and certainly today, I was more and more thankful that the real issue was that God had accepted me. That is far, far more wonderful than that I had once accepted him through his son, Jesus Christ. And as life goes on, it's almost unbelievable that he can accept us as we see more and more of our own sinfulness and our genuine unworthiness. That is not just the words of mock modesty. If you could see my heart, if you saw what I was really like, you would sign off immediately and go home. You would say, this man is not worthy to speak to us. Of course, by the same token, if I could see your heart, I should also sign off immediately <laughs> and go back to my hotel and have the supper that I'm looking forward to. I suppose I was the, the average teenager in my day. I was conceited, most of us are at that age. I'd suffered under the usual speech day syndrome at school, 
when important people had come down and told us that we were the hope of the future and all that kind of thing. And evangelism was very much along the same model. If you would give your lives to Christ, what couldn't you do? Well, now that I'm wiser and older, I don't think in those terms at all. I don't think of myself as being the hope of any side. I'm just thankful that God in Christ has accepted me. Again, when I was young, I was used to repeating the emphasis on commitment. Now, I'm far happier to speak of Christ's commitment to me and his people. Exemplified so wonderfully at that Passover table, when after the traitor had left, Jesus told all the rest of the disciples that every one of them would desert him as a coward, and then taking a cup, he drank from it and gave them a covenant in his blood that he would never desert them. After I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Every one of them deserted him, but he is committed to them. That's the gospel I believe in, and that's the gospel that makes me want to worship God. And so I'm thankful to come to a conference with this great emphasis on preaching God, and especially, of course, this weekend, when our eyes turn to Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, and from his word we seek to learn afresh about him. Now, tonight I want to expand a passage of scripture concerning the anger of God. In fact, I'm not going to be able to do that in enormous detail, but I trust sufficiently, I hope at any rate, to give an introduction to part of that passage in Hebrews 3. But I think it necessary, before I start doing that, because of the peculiar situation in which we find ourselves today, and because of the nature of this conference, to start by making two statements. I want to make these two statements about the contemporary situation in which I think all of us live. I think this will enable us to bind our biblical passages to our present spiritual situation in the West. Now, I say that rather presumptuously because I don't know the United States very well. I've been to Philadelphia once before. It, in fact, was one of my favorite stops. But I don't know you well. And so perhaps it would be wiser for me to say the present spiritual situation in the United Kingdom in Great Britain. But I suspect, and you can tell me yourself during the weekend, I suspect that much the same sort of thing is happening here. At any rate, whether it is or not, I assure you it is happening at home. Here are my two first statements. I'll take a little time over the first. The second is comparatively simple and self-explanatory. First, in the main, main line and older churches of Britain, and I think possibly of the West, in the older Protestant churches, the wrath of God is no longer accepted as a believable reality. In theological writing and in theological thinking, it is almost unanimous outside some Catholic and, of course, evangelical circles. Now, what that means is that the West, the Western churches, are not simply ceasing to believe in the wrath of God. What it means is that they are ceasing to believe in the true God at all. This is one of the first ways in which we reveal that we have ceased to believe seriously in the God of the Bible. There's a story tale, which I think is true, of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'm never quite sure of the details, and it may be somebody will be able to put me right. But I think some members of the British Council of Churches had come to him some many years ago 
and said that it was such a great pity that they and he were not at one, and they believed that the reason was that they were not at one on the scriptures. And they would like to convene a meeting to talk about the scriptures, to hear his viewpoint, the evangelical one, and then they would give their viewpoint, and they would chisel away to get some kind of agreement so that there might be Christian union in Britain. Dr. Lord-Jones apparently agreed to read a paper, but not on the scriptures, but on the nature of God. When the time came, he read his paper. As you can imagine, it was a magnificent survey of the nature of God. And in it, he said, that God was angry with sinners every day. This greatly startled many of those who were listening. And at the end, uh, they said quite impatiently, without really wanting to wait for a discussion, that they could never accept such an idea of God. There was no possibility, therefore, of their working with him. They saw that the division was much wider than they thought. But notice, where was the division? It was thought that the division was on the scriptures. And we still sometimes talk as though that is the major thing. But actually the division was on the nature of God himself. What it turns out to be is that he believed in the God revealed in the Bible and they did not and do not. Now there is a growing gap today, as many of you are aware, between modern theological activity and the living church. It may be that you are pleased at that gap, though I assure you it is a sad thing. It means that the theologians become less and less spiritual and the church does less and less thinking. But even though this gap is widening between theological activity in the colleges and the universities and the living church, and thank God for the new life there is here, just as there is too at home, even though these theologians may seem to be far away from us, I want to tell you that we are nevertheless, whether we like it or not, greatly influenced by them. It may take a generation, but in the end what liberal theologians are saying will be echoed even in evangelical churches, though the tune might be slightly different. Let me ask you if evangelicals in the growing generations are serious anymore about human destiny. Do they believe now with ultimate seriousness in God's anger? It seems to me that it may be that what liberalism has not been able to destroy in the evangelical churches, sentimentalism will. Let me give you some quick test questions. What of our preaching and our evangelism? Turn, if you will, for a moment. I haven't many cross-references, but those I have, I think, are important. Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 10, verse 42. I'm reminded of it because we had it in our conference at Pittsburgh uh, yesterday. We looked at this remarkable summary of the preaching of the gospel. Whenever you get a summary like this, it is worth studying if you're a preacher or a teacher. Acts 10, 42, 43. Here Peter tells what he's been commanded to preach to the people. He gives a summary of what God has told him to say. He says, God commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that Jesus is the one ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. That was the first thing. Secondly, to him, that is to Jesus, all the prophets, all the scriptures bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, my friends, that is a very remarkable order. 
It is not as far as I can see the general order in which the gospel is preached in evangelical churches at home today. Notice that it begins not with the fact that Jesus is a saviour, but that Jesus is a judge. It points to the future. It doesn't plead with young people to meet with Jesus in their lives today. It tells them that whether they like it or not, they will meet Jesus in the future. They will meet him inevitably as their judge, because he's the judge of the living and the dead, and therefore he will be yours and mine. Having started by going into the future and to the judgment day and saying that Jesus is there, the second great truth that Peter was commanded to preach was this that the the prophets bore witness to, that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That is to say that the judge has come into the world here and now to prepare us for his judgment. Since he is going to be the judge, he knows what the judgment will be like. And he comes to prepare us for it by, believe it or not, granting us forgiveness and absolution. And he does that through his name. What is his name? Is his name that of judge or savior? His characteristic name is savior. So there is no doubt whatever that the early church preached that Jesus was savior, but I'm not sure they preached it quite in the way that we are doing today. They didn't cut the corners. They started by looking to the future. We are saved from the wrath to come. That is what salvation is about. Our salvation lies in the future. It is anticipated by the gift of the Holy Spirit now, but we shall know the power of God in saving us only on that day. You'll know it then. That we should come through that great and cataclysmic judgment, that will tell us of the power of God. So salvation in Christ, according to that apostolic preaching, is not from the wretchedness of this world, not from the wretchedness of our plight in society today, not from our miserable lives and lack of purpose, but from the wrath to come. It's a good question to ask today. Are we more frightened by the problems set by this world or the problems set by the world to come? Which frighten you more? because in accordance with that answer, the evangelist will preach to you. If you're more frightened by the problems of this world, he'll preach his gospel in those terms. Let me ask another question. What about our teaching and our discipling? I've been greatly struck in trying to learn from the New Testament what it means to disciple people, and that's an area where I think many of our churches have been weak, and we certainly at St. Helens are trying to grow in this regard, I've been struck with a couplet, a marriage that is made in Scripture, and a marriage which God refuses to allow to be separated. That is the marriage between warning and teaching. Colossians 1.28 Him we proclaim, warning every man and teaching every man in order to present every man mature in Jesus Christ. That's very interesting, isn't it? Not just teaching, but warning too. No one can become a disciple who is mature without it. We seem sometimes to uh, want to preach people the promises of God without the warnings of God. Someone said to me the other day, there seem to be a lot of promise boxes. Have you come across a warning box? Well, have you? Might be quite a good idea to make one. To make one for your Bible class. To take out a warning every Sunday morning. 
There are many in the Bible and we need them badly. What of our preaching? What of our teaching and discipling? What of our worship and especially our popular worship? Is there seriousness there? Is there grief over sin expressed in our music and in our, in our words? Is there awe at God and his ways? Is there a tender desire in the conscience that at all costs we must obey him because we fear him as well as love him? Is there that astonishing delight that you get in the book of Revelation at the justice of God when in his justice and wrath he burns up all the garbage in the world? I don't know if you've ever studied the choruses and songs of the book of Revelation. They might give you rather a shock. Listen to this one. I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven singing and crying. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried. Yes, they didn't mind repeating. Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Have you ever heard such a song? Hallelujah, the smoke goes up from her forever and ever. It's not exactly our, our way of thinking, is it? You see, the book of Revelation tells us that a wholesome faith in God rejoices that we believe in this wrath and justice of God, for they go together, which will one day burn up all the garbage in the world. And if you don't believe that, it's a pretty miserable outlook, isn't it? He will do it. Nothing that offends him will be left. How could we live without that hope? The wrath of God is something that the saints rejoice in on the last day. There we tremble too. Well, now I put these fairly superficial questions to you this evening by way of introduction because I wanted to uh, bring home to you that what is happening in the mainline and older churches could easily happen to us. Those of you who are younger here have to see it. it doesn't happen to us. My first proposition was then that in the mainline churches of Britain, and I guess this is true farther afield, no one any longer takes seriously the anger and wrath of God. It is unbelievable and untaught. Now my second statement follows from that and it is deeply ironic. It is that the wrath of God is at work in the churches of the West today. I say that is deeply ironic, isn't it? The churches do not believe in it, but the wrath of God is at work in their churches. I suppose I might have chosen today to expand Romans 1, though it is familiar, I imagine, to most of us. In that marvelous passage, we're taught what it means when the wrath of God is revealed today, not on the last day. And you remember that we're told that the wrath of God is revealed today on a society that will not acknowledge God by giving up men to their sins. I often think of the English Bobby. You know, the Bobby is what we call our policeman. He stands there when there are crowds in the street holding people back, without which there would be chaos. It always comes to my mind when I read the end of Romans 1. It's as though God in his mercy is constantly holding back the deluge of sin and filth that might flood our society if he did not do that. We don't know what we owe to his mercy in that regard. But what Romans 1 says is that if society goes on refusing to acknowledge God, God will take back his arm, so to speak, and give us up to this deluge 
this blood, and in particular, of course, to perverted sexual relations. Yesterday, the pulpit has to be tough enough to use plain language, doesn't it? We can no longer hide behind euphemisms. What Romans 1 says is that if we will not have a relationship with God, if we refuse to live with God, if we refuse to let God be God of his world, as far as we are concerned, though of course it makes no difference to God, but if we take that attitude, then he will destroy our human relations. And so we get the misery of homosexual relationships, and what a misery it is. It may be that you have tendencies and temptations of all kinds that you hope others don't know. God is gracious, God is faithful. But to give way to this activity is an abomination to God, and it is utterly destructive of human community. Now, my friends, what I'm saying tonight is this. It is obvious that that is in our societies but it is coming into our churches. And why is it coming into our churches? Why? Because our churches are doing what our society has done, refusing to have the knowledge of God. If the older mainline churches refuse the knowledge of God, then he will hand those churches over to this kind of destructive behavior. And there will be nothing, nothing, that the authorities can do about it. It is a terrifying thought, is it not? That the wrath of God today, in the times in which we live, is being revealed not only in our society, but in those churches which have been in such a large measure captured by the world. Now that is the theme that I want to take this evening. I want to talk about the wrath of God among his people. I don't think it's a familiar theme, but it's very much a theme in the Bible. I'm not going to talk about the wrath of God on the last day, and I'm not going to talk about the wrath of God in our society. I'm going to talk about the wrath of God among his people, among his, his, within his church. And we're going to look at Hebrews 3, 7 to 19. That's all we'll have time to glance at. I want to emphasize one or two verses in this remarkable passage. Now, as you're turning to it, let me tell you what Paul is doing in Hebrews 3. He is doing what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 10. He is using the church in the wilderness, in Exodus and Numbers, as an analogy. He points to that story of long ago, and he asks the Christians, the church of his day, to look at that story and to look at the church in the wilderness. And he asks them to look at the church in the wilderness as a warning. He points out that the church in the wilderness was a community, a people of God, who had been redeemed by blood from slavery in Egypt. They were now traveling to the promised land of rest. That is an analogy, of course, of the New Testament church that has been redeemed by the blood of Christ from sin and death and is on our journey to heaven. Now, to help the church of his own day, Our author to the letter to the Hebrews does what God in the Exodus does. He gives them both promises and warnings. The promises of God to his people we're familiar with, and there are some lovely ones, for example, in Hebrews 6, verse 13 onwards, which we have no time to read tonight. But they are the promise of the perseverance of the saints, the promise that God will keep his people to the end. Hebrews is quite clear about that, in case you should have cause to misunderstand me in a moment or two. 
But as well as that great promise in Hebrews 6, the writer to the Hebrews gives at least seven warnings. And these warnings are that his people are responsible for holding fast to the end themselves. Both those are taught in Hebrews. Hebrews teaches that God will keep his people to the end, but Hebrews also teaches that we must hold fast. You will see that in verse 6 of our passage, and you will see it again in verse 14. Let me read verse 6. We are his house if we hold fast our confidence and pride and our hope. If! If! And then verse 14. For we share in Christ if only we hold our first confidence firm to the end. Now it is that if that he is talking about. It is this warning that he is given, giving. He is asking the church of his own day why they are behaving like the church in the wilderness. And he is warning them that if they go on behaving like that, they will never enter heaven. Does that shock you? Shocked me when I first read it. There are three things that I want you to notice in this remarkable passage. And the first is concerning God. What he says about the church in the wilderness in verses 16 to 18 is that God acted in the wilderness in terrible anger. Look at verses 16, 17, and 18. He asks three questions, and he gives three answers. First question, who were they that heard and yet were rebellious? Well, who were they? Answer, was it not all those who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses? What a terrible answer. All. Second question. Are you ready for it? It's another shocker. With whom was he provoked for forty years? Answer. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Six hundred thousand men. Third question. To whom did he swear that they should never enter his rest? Answer. Those who were disobedient. All who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses, all who were disobedient, 600,000 men fell in the wilderness and never reached the promised land. That was because of the anger of God. He was provoked by them, for they did not know his ways. Now we are bound to ask, aren't we, as we read this, is this in character? This is what many people have asked today about the anger of God. Is this in character with the God that we know? When I was first reading theology at Cambridge, it was said quite superficially in the divinity schools that this was largely Old Testament, and we needn't worry with it. Well, let's go back to the Old Testament and see just what the Old Testament says, and we'll turn to Exodus chapter 33. And since this is one of the most glorious passages in the Bible, I would like you to turn. I already hear the leaves. You can't tell what a lovely sound that is to a speaker. He knows that you're with him. Verses 1 to 3. Just to start the story, the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 33, verse 1, Depart, go up hence, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. So there's the beginning. You're to go to Canaan. And as you know, Moses says, he can't go alone. Verse 12. See, thou sayest to me, bring up this people, but thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me, yet thou hast said, I know you by name, and there I pray you. If I have found favor, will you come up with us? 
Marvelous passage. We can't go without you. And so God promises to reveal himself to Moses and the people as their leader and tells him to get into a cleft in the rock and he will pass by and Moses will be allowed to see simply a glimpse as he passes. So Moses got up early and did so in the morning and the Lord, verse 5 of chapter 34, stood and proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is what I was told I needn't bother with. How thankful I am that I disobeyed. The Lord passed by and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses made haste to bow his head toward the earth and worshipped. And so might we. Is that not a marvelous description of God? Is there anything in the New Testament more wonderful than that? That is what we see in the face of Jesus Christ, isn't it? In his fullness. Merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. Ah, there's my theme. Yes, God is angry, but it's not in character with him to be angry. And he's slow to anger, but... Though he is full of mercy and grace, he will by no means clear the guilty. Now that is the teaching of the letter to the Hebrews. That is the teaching of Jesus Christ. That is the teaching of all the apostles. He is slow to anger, but we must not presume on him. And that is what the church in the wilderness did. Turn over a few pages from Hebrews to Jude. It's a small letter. And you would think it was impossible to find, but as it's the last but one before the book of Revelation, everybody can find it. And when I was doing some Bible expositions on Jude, I think the verse that made a very great impression on me was verse 5. Because this is the same theme as I'm talking about tonight and teaching from Hebrews. In Jude 5, the writer says, I desire to remind you, though you were once for all fully informed, that he who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He saved, he destroyed. But notice whom he destroyed. He destroyed precisely those who did not believe. In other words, they are not believers. In other words, they are not his church. You see, it is when the church becomes unbelieving that it ceases to be his church and it is on the brink of destruction. That means that though the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ, thank God for that, nevertheless churches can and are destroyed, can be and are destroyed. With some friends I went on a holiday, as I dare say some of you have done, to Turkey, modern Turkey, parts of Asia Minor, as you may know it, uh, to see the seven churches. They're not really all worth seeing, to be quite honest, so I mustn't spoil the uh, travel agent's business. When you get to a church like Colossae, there's only a stone in the grass, and uh, as far as we were concerned, it was tremendously hot in August, and the motel owners had a marvellous way of making the most delectable swimming baths, and we didn't make much progress. By the way, the best swimming bath of all, if you happen to go that way, is made out of the lukewarm waters of Laodicea. And when you arrive there, hot and tired, 
As we did that afternoon in baking heat in August, we uh, went straight into the pool and you swim across it and your nose looks over a little ledge and there beneath you, shimmering in the plain, is the, the valley in which these churches once lived. Your pastor may have, you may have, a little, uh, a little um, map of the early church. I have one at home and if you open it, there's a large page of the early world, the world of that day, and little tiny candles where all the churches were, like little lights in the darkness. And there are all the lights over Asia Minor. There's not one there today. Just a handful of Christians in Ankara and a handful of Christians in Istanbul, one of the countries hardest to reach for Jesus Christ, that's where the early churches were. And every one of them was destroyed. Either persecution from without or rot from within. That's how churches still are destroyed. That's why Europe is what Europe is today. It may not need persecution. Indeed, persecution in Eastern Europe seems to be bringing the church alive again. But in Western Europe, what a sad picture. Those who do not hold fast their confidence, those who do not believe will be destroyed. That is the message of Hebrews 3, verses 16 to 18. Now, secondly, I want you to look at this passage and see something about the people. We've seen something about God. He was then a God of anger. He was provoked to anger, and he swore in his wrath that they would never enter his rest, and they did not. But what about the people? Well, I put down in my notes that the people, according to this passage, acted in the wilderness with grievous disobedience. Look at all the phrases. Look at verse 8. They hardened their hearts. They rebelled. They tested God. They put him to the test, verse 9. They provoked him, verse 10. Verse 10b, they went astray in their hearts. Verse 10, they did not know his ways. Sentence after sentence, description after description is piled up. And it says they did this for 40 years. It wasn't an aberration. It wasn't just for a short time and then they repented. For 40 years they behaved like that. Now, my brethren and sisters, what this teaches us, and it's taken me a long time to learn it, I don't know why, because it's quite plain in my heart and quite plain in the scriptures, is that we Christians have a great capacity for sinfulness. In the Church of England, to which I belong at home, there is a liturgical tradition, which is largely being, I think, put on one side today. But one of the things that I value in the liturgical tradition that comes from the Reformation and men like Cranmer is that when you come to worship together at the beginning, you always start by saying, Lord, have mercy upon me. And some people who've come from different traditions have told me when they've come to worship in the morning, what a blessing that has been to them. And how we confess our sins every week. If you look at verse uh, 13, you will see that once a week is not enough. Verse 13 says, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's how far God trusts you. He doesn't trust you out of his sight for 24 hours. So he tells another Christian to come and find you. And don't you need it? So do I. You know, I mean this seriously. We need it every 24 hours. We are not trustworthy. There's not enough teaching about sin in the Christian at the moment. If the Holy Spirit is working in the church, then he will be convicting people of sin. And if people are not convicted of their sinfulness, the Holy Spirit isn't at work. 
Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Yes, that's very easy. I vividly remember Lorne Sanier, a fine Christian teacher, giving some Bible readings at a conference, and he was giving them on Psalm 119, and uh, it is a little bit samey at times, isn't it, Psalm 119? It goes on praising the Word of God in different words, and I'm not sure that people were listening very carefully when he got to the last verse. But I never noticed the last verse before, and I'm going to read it to you now. Don't bother to turn it up. This is the 176th verse of the 119th Psalm. All through this psalm, for 175 verses, he's been telling God how much he loves God's word. And now he says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. Well, I can only say I was riveted by that word of God. Because, yes, I go astray like a lost sheep, even though I love God's word. Even though I can go right through that psalm, right through that conference, I know that's speaking about me. The lost sheep is a title, too, of the Christian. Often we are wandering. Now, very briefly, I listed all these things that are said here in Hebrews 3, and I looked them up in Exodus and Numbers. I decided that I couldn't tell you them all, or you'd be exhausted. I decided, therefore, to choose three, and I've got three for your notes to take away with tonight and meditate overnight. Three things that the church in the wilderness did that provoked God to anger then and provoked God, provokes God to anger today. Here's the first. They doubted God's care in the hard times. They doubted God's care for them in the hard times. Now, I have to say that the church in the wilderness was a very grumbly church. They seemed to find hardship very hard, and that's just like Christians today. It's partly because prosperity was offered as the blessing of the Old Testament, whereas adversity is the blessing of the New Testament. So we better get used to it. But it seems today that Christians are not as tough as they once were. And when delay and hardship and disappointment come, they wonder if God still cares for them. Oh, it is, of course, easy to say this from a platform. I often think of that story of the disciples on the boat in Mark 4. Do you remember? With Jesus asleep in the storm... And how they were terrified by the storm, and as fishermen, it must have been a great one, therefore. And they go up to Jesus and they shake him, and they say those very terrible words. Carest thou not that we perish? And after Jesus has rebuked the wind and the waves, he rebukes them in some of the most stinging verses in Mark. He says, why this craven fear? You see what that story is meant to teach us. It is easy to believe in Jesus when he stands up in the boat and he rebukes the wind and the waves. That's a mighty miracle. I know, because I was in the Navy for three years. And I know that the wind can stop in a few minutes, but the waves never do. The thing that makes you seasick is the swell afterwards for 24 hours. When Jesus stood up in that boat, he said, Be still, and wind and waves are still. That's a miracle. That's the Creator in charge. Well, it's easy to believe then. But you see, Jesus wanted to be trusted when he was asleep in the boat. What grieved him is that they could not trust themselves to him in that situation. It's easy to trust in God when prayers are answered for the healing of the sick. 
But what do we do when we pray and the heavens are like brass and God seems to be asleep and Jesus says nothing and our loved one dies? What do we do then? Do we say, carest thou not that we perish? You've forgotten us. Do we say that? Well, it's very hard not to. But that's what they did in the wilderness all the time. Without visible proofs, without evident miracles, they were constantly grumbling that God did not care for them. We must not be like that. Secondly, they longed to go back to Egypt. Now there's a good test for you tonight. Do you long to go back to the world or do you want to go to the world to come? In the letter to the Hebrews, this is given as a simple test of whether you are a Christian or not that pleases the heart of God. Turn over a few pages to chapter 11, verse 13, because these themes run right the way through Hebrews. Hebrews 11 is largely about dying. Largely about the fact that these men were able to face death because they were men of faith. These all died in faith, not having received what was promised but having seen it and greeted it from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God's not ashamed to be their God. Now that's a point, isn't it? Is God ashamed to be called your God? Now I find that the temptations to look back to Egypt and the world are very strong in my own life. You see, we're all so much more affluent. I find like Gehazi that I start dreaming about houses and gardens and retirement and these things. And I wonder to myself, am I getting like the church in the wilderness that wants to go back to the leeks and garlic of Egypt? Aren't you longing for a church that is awaiting heaven with joy? Aren't you longing for that person on a sickbed who doesn't have to be dragged back into this life by a lot of prayer? but says, I'm looking forward to it. Aren't you looking forward to that? When my time comes, I want to have that testimony and witness. I don't want people to be weeping and trying to hold me back and bring me back into the pulpit at St. Helens. And yet, you see, there is something in us that clings to these things, doesn't it? It gives us security. We love the world. And that provokes God to anger. We are very spoiled children today. Prosperity and ease and the cult of self-fulfillment. All the treasures of Egypt are a great magnet to today's church. It's hard to be a pilgrim, a stranger and a sojourner. We quickly go astray. Our eyes are not on heaven but on earth. And that angers God. It grieves him at his heart. Thirdly and lastly, they were immoral, just like anybody else. That is what testing God means, I think, really. Testing God means seeing how far I can go before God punishes me. Does that strike a chord in your mind? Don't we all do that? If we can? Back then to Hebrews 3. I pray God that we don't, but it's a tremendous temptation to the young Christian today, isn't it? To trade on the patience of God because he no longer fears the anger of God. And of this church in the wilderness, God says, I was provoked with that generation and swore in my wrath that they should never enter my rest. Now my final word. 
And uh, I ask you to listen to this because I don't want to end on a note of gloom and sin, but on a note of hope and joy. And so thirdly, I want you to look at the Holy Spirit. For he was striving with men in the wilderness and he's striving with God's people today. And look how he does it in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. It's very interesting, that isn't it? He takes a passage from the Old Testament and he says, this is the Holy Spirit speaking to you today. That's how the Holy Spirit speaks to the church today. Did you know that? The Holy Spirit speaks today by the scriptures of yesterday. But he brings them alive by his mysterious work. And you will notice that these words of the Holy Spirit to the church today are warnings here. Not always, but here they are. I used to have some friends who were always getting messages from the Holy Spirit and every message they got from the Holy Spirit was to tell them how well they were doing. You begin to be a bit skeptical after a while, don't you? This word from the Holy Spirit is telling them that they're not doing well. Just challenging them. Warning them. And this word from the Holy Spirit is telling them to listen to God. Just turn back one page as I finish. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, I suppose, really is this message. It's the message of the whole of the first part of the letter to the Hebrews. It is the message that the Holy Spirit would put on our hearts tonight. It's a message for Christians. Verse 3 is not an evangelistic message. It's for you. We must pay the closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. That's what happens to the churches, isn't it? We don't rebel, we drift. For if the message declared by angels, that is, the Old Testament, was valid, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape in the New Testament church if we neglect such a great message? You expect him to say that, but he doesn't. Because if you neglect the message, you neglect the salvation. That's how the church drifts from heaven, by drifting from the word of God. When the church is drifting from the word of God, it is going back to Egypt, and we shall be fairly certain that it will never enter its rest. Today there are so many loud voices for the church to listen to, aren't there? Voices everywhere, some coming from many churches which do not seem to be the word of God. And in all that Babel, we have got to be paying close attention both as individuals and as congregations to the word of God. I'll tell you how I know that I'm getting a little old. It's because when I'm in a party, as I was the night before last, and everybody's talking at once, I have to ask the person next to me to speak clearly. Whereas when I was young, you see, I could be in a party where everyone was talking at once and I could hear everything. Now, we're in a world and in a church where everybody's talking at once. There are all sorts of answers. And uh, your pastor, Dr. Boyce, and I, and the others on this platform, we stand for the fact that the only answer for the church and the individual is the Word of God. Our young people went to uh, Utrecht at December for a great missions conference, and indeed it was a great time. It was run by evangelical people and they had a great time. But our, our leaders came back and they said they were surprised that there were no Bible expositions. Instead they had four, what are called today, dynamic speakers. 
Well, I don't know. I was sitting down and I was thinking to myself and I thought, I, I, I guess it was rather like this. I don't know. The committee were saying to themselves, shall we have some Bible expositions? Well, there are all sorts of evangelical Christians here. If we teach the Bible faithfully, it may split the fellowship. Or somebody else may have said on the committee, well, you know, the last Bible reads we had, they were awfully dull. So let's have a dynamic speaker. Dear brothers, let's take the dynamic speakers out and drop them in the Atlantic, shall we? <laughs> or at least, as long as they teach the Bible, they can stay on shore. But what we need today is not dynamic speakers, but Bible teachers. Because what the Holy Spirit says is if we don't listen to that word, we will go astray in our hearts. We're not worth trusting for 24 hours. So take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, lest God should say to you, I swear in my wrath, you will never enter my rest. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our gracious and heavenly Father, we come to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, thankful that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and that he is the propitiation for our sins. And as we come to you, we want to fear you as well as love you. We want to treat seriously your word and to be delivered from that superficiality that is all around us today. Lord, our hearts have trembled as we look within tonight and as we look at your word because we know within us there is so much evil and so much capacity for hardness as we prayed earlier this evening. So, Heavenly Father, we pray that it may not happen in this country and amongst these churches that you have to overthrow people in the wilderness. We come to you tonight and we ask and plead that you will restore the churches, that you will have mercy upon us, that you will cause them to hearken to your word, that your Holy Spirit's warning may be heeded, that your people may take care. Heavenly Father, write these words on my heart and write them on our hearts, 